0: throughout the book of Acts. It's the act of the Holy Spirit. It's Jesus leaving to create a space for the Holy Spirit to come and to empower his people. And it's not a collection of heroes who are so transcendent and beyond what each of you are today. It's a bunch of people who say, I've got Jesus and nothing else. So come and fill me and I will follow you. It's not even a, a book of great strategy. Um, often when people are leading churches or starting new churches, we look at the book of Acts as a bit of a a template for how to do it. But they kind of happen by accident. Often the church has grown because persecution hits, because people get angry about these bold claims that these new followers of Jesus make, and they get scattered, and the church is birthed in that way. So let's not look for a blueprint or an instruction manual, but let's look for the Holy Spirit to come the Holy Spirit to come and to reorder our lives. So what's different than a bunch of activity? Well, actually what's different is when we allow the Holy Spirit to come and to reframe our identity. Rather than investing in projects and activities, it's when we become people. Not people who pray, but people of prayer. And I think you can then look through the rest of the book of Acts and you can feel the excitement to say that actually when that happened. Those people change the world. And actually, that's our destiny. So I love the fact that you guys have got Thanksgiving. You've got a live story of where you've asked God to do something. You've been able to celebrate that today. That's incredible, isn't it, that prayer really, really does change things. We get time later on, which depends on me not waffling on for too long. I'll tell you some stories of answered prayer. But actually, it's important to recognize that we don't always have those stories, do we? So if any of us pray, my hit rate on prayer is really low. I've prayed so many prayers over the years and so many times those prayers have not ended up with the conclusion that I'd love to see happen. Some of those are live stories of people who i prayed for healing. Some of those are live stories where i prayed for people to know Jesus and actually their lives feel like they are sometimes in a worse place than when we started. But the root of prayer, we look at Peter through the story. If you go back to Peter in the gospel, there's this moment where Jesus speaks truth and offends the crowd and people run away. And he just says to his followers, what do you say about me? And Peter names Jesus. But then at another point, he says, are you going to leave me? And Peter says, no, where else can I go? Because only you have the words of life. So in all of this, this is about placing our confidence in God. Let's do a little bit of context. So the book of Acts is the sequel to the book of Luke. So if you've read through the Gospels at any point, you've got this narrative of Jesus's life. And this is volume two. And actually, it would be a little bit of a disappointing story, wouldn't it, when the hero of the story, Jesus, leaves partway through. But the good news is it gets incredible. This is one of the most extraordinary chapters of history that we could ever possibly read. And one of the most important things to get is that right at the beginning of the book of Acts, if you want to go away and read Acts 1, is there's a simple instruction from Jesus. And he basically just says, just stay, just wait, and I'm going to send my Holy Spirit to you. And everything is going to change. And I'm going to do that. And I'm going to give you power. And that power is going to allow you to be witnesses to all of the things that I've done. All the things that I've said. And the world will be transformed through it. Now that sounds great. But then Jesus goes off into heaven and leaves his followers there alone on earth. And so they've got this promise of something to come. But there's this chasm. There's this void. There's this moment where actually they're alone. And so what do they do? They follow what Jesus told them to do. And just as they had done before Jesus died, they went to an upper room, and we hear that they pray. A bit like you guys, they've got some business, some notices to attend to, and so they replace the fallen Judas with Matthias. who's another who experienced Jesus' life firsthand. And then chapter two of Acts, probably one of my favorite chapters in the whole Bible. It's incredible. It's not, again, a story of human initiative. It's about the Holy Spirit coming. And so as they are together in one place, maybe just picture this right here. It's kind of a little bit quiet. You guys are like half the number you were as we were worshipping. All the kids have gone downstairs. There's a, there's a hush. But into that hush, suddenly you hear a noise. And that noise begins to reverberate around the entire building. It says in Acts 2 that this noise fills the house. And You kind of have to empathise a little bit with Luke here. It's like, how do you describe this thing? I don't know if you've ever had something that sort of is beyond what you've ever experienced before and you try and put it into words and you will fail. So this a really good thing for us to recognise here that Luke's doing his absolute best to put this into words, but he probably doesn't get anywhere near close how incredible it was. But he says it's a sound like a mighty rushing wind. Again, we've got some windows open, you occasionally kind of get a little little sneak peek of cars going past. You might get a gust of wind, but, but actually it's quite still. Into that stillness, imagine the sound of a mighty rushing wind. And then he describes what he sees. Again, his language probably doesn't quite capture it. But he says that he sees these like, tongues of fire resting on people. Crazy, it's kind of out of their experience, and it's probably out of ours. But then something extraordinary happens as well. As they are filled with the Holy Spirit, So we can see it's a multi-sensory experience to be filled with the spirit. We've got the sound. We've got the sight. They begin to speak in different tongues. I'm not going to do loads of historical context here, but at this particular moment, loads of people have arrived in Jerusalem for a festival. And so there are people who speak lots of different languages. But these followers of Jesus are a fairly kind of monocultural bunch. They are relatively simple people who will not kind of have 20 languages at their disposal. Um, actually, we could say it's a little bit like me standing here where I might be able to utter the occasional word of French or something like that. But if any of you started speaking to me in a foreign language, I would just smile politely and pretend I understand. But at this moment, they begin speaking in all of these different languages. And what's extraordinary is that all of these people who were gathered in Jerusalem began to hear their own language. And not just anything in their own language, but they begin to hear about the mighty works of God in their own language. And so, again, this crowd, a bit like Luke, they try and make sense of it. And so it's nine in the morning, and the only assumption they can make is that these guys must have been drinking. Now, I'm not quite sure what alcohol they were used to there, because how would they be speaking intelligible Greek and whatever language was going on? But that was the only thing that they could possibly point to. And at this point, Peter stands up. And for later on, I just want you to remember that the last time we had Peter in any kind of public setting speaking was when he denied Jesus. So this is a man who actually has cowed. He's been timid. He's been ashamed to say that he knows Jesus. But suddenly, he stands up. The power of the Holy Spirit does something extraordinary. And he addresses the crowd. And he draws on Scripture. So he shares some verses from the prophet Joel which speaks about the Holy Spirit being poured out and being poured out on all people. And then he goes on to explain the significance of Jesus' death and his resurrection. And then we find that 3,000 people gave their lives to Jesus that day. I'll just say that again, 3,000 people gave their lives to Jesus that day. Uh, the writer Ronald Dunn summarizes events like this. The book of Acts is filled with prayer meetings. Every forward thrust the first church made was immersed in prayer. Take another look at the church at Pentecost. They prayed for 10 days. They preached for 10 minutes. and 3,000 people were saved. Today we pray for 10 minutes. We preach for 10 days. And we're ecstatic if anyone is saved. Our method has got to go back to Jesus. We need to submit all who we are to Jesus. So we see this cataclysmic moment in human history. We see the birthing of the church, actually the, almost like the, the genesis of the fact that we gathered here over 2,000 years later. It's a spark that becomes a flame, and it travels the globe. But how does it start? Well, it starts a little bit like this, and I think there's real hope there. It starts with a relatively small group of people gathering quietly in an upper room. How do I know that? Well, let's go back to chapter 1, verse 14. It says, they all joined together constantly in prayer along with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brother. Again, think about what I said about Peter. The last public appearance of Peter was one which was marked by fear. Actually, they've got every reason to be a little bit afraid at this moment. But character is what emerges. And people talk about character is what happens when no one's watching. Character is who you are in the dark. It's the small choices that we might make on a daily basis. And the thing is, when people stand on platforms, they rarely get asked about small choices. It's about the big and mighty deeds. It's about the things which are impressive. But when we think about the big battle scene between David and Goliath, I work with young people all the time. Very few of them have ever read the Bible. But actually, if you say David and Goliath, they get the David and Goliath thing. But you know what? We run the risk of avoiding what's really happened in the David and Goliath story if we just go straight to the battle scene. Because David and Goliath is the culmination of a thousand little choices that David makes during his life. Eugene Peterson calls this long obedience in the same direction. The little choices, the little choices. For that early church, that choice to do what Jesus said, even when Jesus had gone from them, to go to the room and to pray the little choices over and over and over again. That's the transformation between timid Peter And Peter, who can address the crowd. So I said that they've got cause to be afraid. Well, of course they have, because their leader, the one that they followed, has been crucified. And not just that, but his resurrection is a scandal. And it's a scandal in the Jewish community, and it's a scandal in the Roman community. And Roman guards would probably have been executed because Jesus' tomb was open. So this is a pretty dangerous time. And if you are associated with Jesus, you've got a reason to be afraid. So let's just think about what happens then, even when there's this crescendo of noise and visual and they start to speak. They don't just hide away, but Peter emerges on the balcony and speaks. Their response is obedience and prayer, obedience and prayer, obedience and prayer. So what we tend to do is we circle around to the final verses of Acts 2. And this becomes our picture of devotion. But it starts far earlier. The devotion that's expressed at the end of Acts is a little bit like, it's the peak, isn't it? It's the peak of the story. So um, I don't know if there are any romantics amongst you, but it'd be a little bit like climbing the Eiffel Tower and it's a perfect starry spring night and maybe there's a glass of red wine and it doesn't become very difficult to say the words, I love you. But then some of you are parents in this room. Think about how much more difficult the I love you is at three in the morning when you are clearing up scoops of vomit. Sorry to be so visceral there. The I love you in that moment is so much more difficult than the Eiffel Tower moment. So the devotion that happens at the end of Acts 2, it's incredible. We should completely note it, but it happens at the crescendo. But it all comes from the devotion that precedes it. And the devotion that precedes it is in that quiet moment is in that dark moment, is in the 3 a.m. vomit moment. Tim Keller writes that religious people find God useful, but Christians find God beautiful. I think it's a lovely contrast. Um, On our table, we were praying that TSP prayer that Andy led us in. And one of the sorries was, I'm sorry for when I only come to you with pleasers. Sorry when I only come to you to fulfill my requirements and I forget the fullness of who you are. So people can find God useful, religious people can find God useful, but the Christian's are called to find God beautiful. And the reality is that both can be obedient. Because actually you can have confidence in the power of God that would make you think, do you know what, I'm going to be obedient. But the difference is one pursues God for what he can do, and the other for who he is. The religious person pursues God for what he can do for him, and the Christian pursues God for who he is. So I would love to invite the Holy Spirit to stir in us devotion that's more than circumstantial, that's more than Eiffel Tower, that is a little bit more 3 a.m. And that's all waffly, right? That's all kind of like up here thinking, that's, that's good theology, that's lovely philosophy. But, but what does that actually mean? What does it actually mean to be devoted so if I asked you to, maybe the, the kind of technologically minded of you, to open up your banking app on your phone, I could give you a picture of devotion. I'm not going to hack your phones and kind of figure out your passwords. But actually one way of seeing our devotion is what we spend our money. On. Um, my mum's brilliant, right? So I can say to my mum, I was born in 1982, um, and my mum's had a fax since the late 70s. So I can find out every holiday we ever went on and where we went to, and she's got all of this detail in there. And so actually I could go to my mum's facts, and I could find out what my mum's devoted to. Maybe your, your diary on your phone, your calendar on your phone. So we can get a little bit of an indication of where our devotion is. But I want us to zoom in on one particular thing. You can have lots of chance to talk about devotion in the coming weeks. And it's the battle for our attention. So John Mark Comer talks about two inflection points in history. It so talks about 1440. Anyone know what happened in 1440? Any historians amongst us? It was when Johannes Gutenberg invented the printing press. And it's like this sort of butterfly effect that cascades through history. So the fact that suddenly you can print literature and you can distribute it, it changes everything. Actually, you can link the Reformation, which was this huge event which transformed church and the way that people related to each other, related to God. You can trace that back. But you can also look at the Enlightenment, which was this way of thinking, this renewal of thinking that led to a lot of good. That led to a lot of hard stuff as well. So inflection point number one, 1440, the printing press. 2007 is my second inflection point. Any ideas what happened in 2007? The iPhone. The iPhone was released. Okay, now that might sound inconsequential, but actually it's quite a big deal. Because it meant that suddenly the little networks we had that allowed us to connect with each other went global. And so there's some really great stuff in that. We, um, we speak to Emma's family, my wife's family, that live in the States every week because of the advent of social media and technology. There's so much that's good. But the challenge is, is that when we pick up our phones, we suddenly have a camera. We suddenly have a TV. We suddenly have an infinite encyclopedia where we can just draw down knowledge. It's like an Alice's Wonderland of information and entertainment. And it has a huge potential for distraction. So in 2007, the attention economy went into overdrive. The journalist Andrew Sullivan says that this new epidemic of distraction is our civilization's specific weakness. The problem is devotion is not enough if we aim at the wrong target. And what's likely to cause us to aim at the wrong target it's when our attention is drawn by something or someone else. Andrew Murray, not the tennis player, said, Jesus never taught his disciples how to preach, only how to pray. To know how to speak to God is more than knowing how to speak to man. We read through the book of Acts and we see that they pray at every point. They pray on the road. They pray in prison. They pray at the point of death. And sometimes death gets turned around. And as they pray, it's not just words, not just words thrown up into a vacuum, but power is released. Things change. Again, I can't explain to you why sometimes they don't. And that's certainly my experience that sometimes they don't. But a little bit like Peter, I know that where else can I go? Because only Jesus has the words of life. They pray from house to house. They pray in the temple courts. They pray outside the city gate. Jesus has their attention. It drives their activity. And crucially, it transforms their identity. And see, this is the big challenge for us, is that we could all right now, we could, kind of, we could probably buy something, we could probably buy an app on our phone, we could probably write an appointment in our diary, and it would have a short-term impact on our activity. We could go out of here, and we could say, right, I'm going to pray for three people for the next week that they'll encounter Jesus. And that's good, but until it begins to impact our identity, it doesn't stick. So there's this age-old debate, um, age-old, it's not really age-old, it's the last few years, where people say, who's the greatest footballer of all time? And um, if you were born over 50 years ago, it'd be Pelé or Maradona. If you are born more recently, it'd be Cristiano Ronaldo or Lionel Messi. The answer's Messi, by the way. But for this example, I'm going to use Cristiano Ronaldo. See, Cristiano Ronaldo wasn't born a footballer. But as a child, he played football. And as he played football, he devoted himself to football. And so he began to practice more and more football. And it's why it's a better example than Messi, because Messi's got this extraordinary, what feels like a God-given grace ability on the ball. But actually with Ronaldo, you can look at old footage of Ronaldo, and you can see this extraordinary improvement. And so what happened with Ronaldo was that his activity determined his identity, and his identity then determines his ongoing activity. And that's the invitation for each of us. This stuff doesn't just happen magically. Vomit Eiffel Tower. It's easy to do it at the Eiffel Tower moment. But actually, in chapter one, we see the disciples in a moment of despair being obedient to Jesus and they begin praying. Peter wasn't always so bold as to preach to a restless crowd of strangers who some of them would have been baying for blood. Many of them were mocking them. He'd lied when questioned by a servant girl who asked if he knew Jesus, but something changes. He gave Jesus his attention, and his obedience allowed him to engage with the activity that Jesus invited him into. And that stirred him to speak with a boldness that wasn't his boldness. It wasn't his boldness. It was the Lord's boldness. And it's exactly the same for us. Our repeated activity feeds the shift in our identity that our identity determines our activity. And so to go back to Matthew Emmon, when we close our eyes and we open them again, let's not hit the wrong target. Devotion in itself is not enough. Excellent isn't enough if we aim at the wrong target. The target's not to pray, but it's to become people of prayer. And as we pray, we become people of prayer. So we start with our activity and God transforms our identity. And that's the invitation to you as a church just really briefly tell you a quick prayer story from a few weeks ago. And I'm deliberately telling a story that's actually, it's got a lot of sadness in it. But I want to tell you that story because God's present in all of it. So I have the privilege of leading a, a youth charity, youth insurance charity called Urban Devotion. And we spend our first portion of time in prayer. We Don't always get it right. It's not because we're particularly clever or we're kind of like prayer geniuses. It's just that a little bit like Peter, we've kind of resolved that where else can we go? Because only God has the words of life and over the summer one of the communities that we work in there's just been a lot of darkness in that community so uh, a young person who I've known for years was attacked at knife point um, and then attacked at gunpoint um, one of our team who's incredible is extraordinary and has got some stuff in her past which is really painful and some of it is a bit high profile and so she was just mocked in a horrendous cruel merciful way by a group of young people, there was a surging gang activity on this estate. And so one Monday evening, a few weeks ago, we resolved just to prayer walk that estate. And prayer is an amazing thing because, it, again, it's not just us throwing words into a vacuum, but it's a two-way conversation. God speaks to us in different ways. Sometimes there'll be a portion of scripture that might come to mind. Sometimes it might be a sense or a picture or a word that comes to mind. But we're praying about a bunch of things. And I was walking with a lady called Ruth. And um, I just remembered the story about how I felt God call me to move to Erdington. It goes back to 2004. And I just felt we needed to pray for people to know God, that there'd be a revelation of God that would be unusual for people. And so I just prayed that. And then Ruth found a bank card on the floor. And she picked it up. And so I'm sort of streetwise youth worker. You don't want to pick up a bank card, particularly on that estate. You don't want people to see it. And so she says to me, what should I do with this bank card? And so I said, well, you need to know that people have seen you got it now. And so therefore probably need to either destroy it or we could call the number on the back and report it as stolen, get it cancelled. But she's filled with more faith than I was. And so she said, Well, I'm just gonna pray that God would direct us to whoever's bank card it is. It's like, great, you are holier than me, I love that. And so we looked around the corner, there's no one there. And then we walked around another corner, there's no one there. And then I see two lads playing football. I'm not gonna tell them I've got a bank card, that'd be a really silly thing to do. And so um, this has been recorded, right? Okay, I'm going to change the names, but I'm going to have to come up with something in my head that works for this, because there's a name that's quite similar. And so I said to uh, these two lads, "Um, do you guys know Emile Smith? And I looked at me blankly. And then Ruth sees a lady at a doorway. And there's there's a black lady in a dressing gown. She walks over to her and she says, I found this bank card it's got Emile Smith written on it. And the lady um, sort of looks slightly blankly. Ruth says, do you know who he is? And then she pauses for a second, and she says, again, these are made-up names, does it say Emilio Smith? And Ruth looks down at the bank card, and she'd read it wrong, and it said Emilio Smith. The lady shuddered. Again, storyline of a lot of young people I work with, we see a a black mum with a black teenage son, and she thinks the worst. But then there's this extraordinary moment where she says, do you know where my son is? And we say, no, but we just prayed that God would return this card to the owner. And it led to this amazing conversation. She then called her son had the most passive-aggressive conversation I've ever heard, which ended with her putting the phone on speaker and saying, and now you're going to say thank you to these nice people who have found the card. But we've got to have a conversation with Jesus. Jesus was involved in that conversation. It's a really simple story. It's not a conclusion story, but there was another conversation someone else had with that mum the next week give you lots of the big headline stories, could tell you you've had money stories today of where God's provided. I could tell you a story of years ago where we had redundancy letters printed out for all our team. And then suddenly we had this check through from someone who'd never given to us before, we'd never prayed to before, and it was a six figure sum. Like extraordinary. It was really disappointing when I went and cashed it at the bank expecting the, the bank teller to be really impressed and they weren't. But never mind. There are all of these stories about God doing things. But it happens when we engage in an activity that allows our identity to be transformed in order that our activity will continue in that way. So what does it mean for you as oikos to be devoted to prayer? It's not a date in your diary, but it might start with the date in the diary. It's not something in your bank history, but it might start with that. It might start reading a book about prayer or something. But it's about allowing the Holy Spirit to lead you, the Holy Spirit to transform you. And as he does that, he won't just transform you. But he'll transform the people around. Just as, um, as Dan comes up, why don't we just allow the Holy Spirit to lead us? Again, not a blueprint that any person has laid out, but they followed the Spirit's leading. What does it mean for us to follow the Spirit's leading today? What does it mean for us to give our attention to Jesus? And it might be that there is part of that story that has jumped out at you. It might be actually the fact that your diary isn't lit appointments to pray. It might be that you're aware of something else that's got your attention. It might be that when I told that story of the transformation in Peter from one who was so scared that he couldn't even admit that he knew Jesus to one who would stand up on a balcony and would preach the gospel to a crowd of potentially hostile strangers. Maybe one of those things has grabbed you. Just as Dan and Nikki play quietly, why don't we just maybe close our eyes? Just allow God to lead us and to meet with us. Thank you.